But there's a couple of things here that I see out there that are just so simplified. One is I'm seeing these tweet threads about who's to blame. And usually the answer is one person, right? I think this is a lot of blame to go around here. Yeah. Silicon Valley Bank itself managed risk poorly. Some of these other banks did as well. It's very obvious they didn't hedge their risks. There's a whole set of problems there. People who sowed panic and participated in the panic, some of them knew better. The Fed, uh, for its herky-jerky interest mm -hmm. rate policy, certainly has some of the blame here. Lawmakers, also in my opinion, potentially to blame because they have stepped in and rolled back some of this regulation as we talked about. So it seems like there's a lot of blame to go around here. Now, you don't have to agree with all of those points about who's yeah. to blame, but I think like trying to isolate one person is silly. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, welcome back, Joe Garvey, to help us fact check ourselves on air. We're trying to get particularly fast on the air today because this Trump stuff could, it's fast developing. It could could get ahead of us before we get this episode up. So Joe, you got your hands full today. I'm ready to go. All right. Well, I'm ready too. We've got a few announcements. Sweat the Technique, uh, one of our shows here on Lost Debate, comes out with an episode on Wednesday with guest Passport Cuddy, who's an author and entrepreneur and expert on social media. She had a great conversation with Stacey Shells, one of our co-hosts who makes her first appearance. Reminder that that show is all from educators talking about how they take their lessons learned from in the classroom and in schools and apply them outside of life. Things like parenting, relationships, learning hobbies, running businesses, et cetera. So check out that episode. Ricky, what else do we got? Also out on Wednesday, The Hardest Step has an episode with Ke Kelly Savage Rodriguez, who was incarcerated wrongfully and spent 23 years behind bars for a wrongful conviction. Um, so that's worth a listen for sure. And also be sure to follow our social media accounts to keep on top of what's going on with this uh, potential Trump indictment today. We're at Lost Debate on Instagram and at The Lost Debate, unfortunately, on Twitter. So a little confusing, but <laughs> you can find us on either one. That will be changing soon. Our voicemail is at 321-200-0570. Keep the voicemails coming. We have some stories today. We're going to take stock of the turmoil in the banking sector. We're also going to turn to a series of controversial moves to weaken child labor laws. Uh, but first, let's turn to the looming indictment of former President Donald Trump. President Trump has posted on Truth Social uh, just this morning that he expects to be arrested on Tuesday. Presidential history could be made this week. That's if former President Donald Trump is indicted by a Manhattan grand jury following an investigation into hush money paid for an alleged sexual encounter with Stormy Daniels. New York City is getting ready as Trump calls once again for protests. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is even vowing to investigate the Manhattan DA's office, although he is saying that people shouldn't go out to protest. I don't think people should protest this. And I, I, I think President Trump doesn't believe that either. All right. Former President Donald Trump said on Saturday he could be arrested this week. They originally pointed to today, which is Tuesday. And he asked his supporters to protest and, quote, take our nation back. Uh, needless to say, it's been a weird couple of days. Joe, where do things stand right now? And we're recording this at 10.35 a.m. Eastern time, just so people know. Yeah, so Trump could be charged in New York any day now for allegedly ordering and covering up hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. Now, this all concerns $130,000 allegedly changing hands in October of 2016 
going from Trump attorney and fixer Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels, whose real name is Stephanie Clifford. Trump was reportedly paying Daniels to stay silent about an alleged affair between the two many years prior. But the fact that the payment supposedly happened during the campaign made it a potential violation of campaign finance laws. The grand jury in Manhattan is looking at the case and could issue an indictment within the week. But the truth is, we don't really know when or if it will happen or what would come of it. So, Robbie, what, what do you think the over under here is on us seeing Trump in handcuffs? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that I want to take so a gleeful about that. <laughs> I know. And, and, and to be clear, I'm not. And I've talked about it on the show before. No, not that you. I think, I'm talking yeah. about Joe. <laughs> I'm just a betting man. I got money I, on the table. I have like a weird confluence of connections to this that we'll get to. One is I was the first advisor to Alvin Bragg, who's leading this case. I, we've asked him about this on one of the very first Lost Debate episodes, which we'll get to. I've been critical of the way that he and Tish James have handled this, their their respective investigations in New York, which we'll also get to. I also am a colleague now of Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer uh, over at the Midas Network, where I do my more partisan show. And somehow later on today, I'm going to have to get on the Midas Network and pulled cold water on um, people's expectations around this case, which could get me canceled on the left. So we'll see how that goes. That's an audience that is not primed to hear what I'm about to say. But to take a step back, uh, the crime here is falsifying business records, we think. And I want to say, we don't know anything. Alvin Bragg, I tried to get through to a lot of his people yesterday, and they're being, like you know, as you can imagine, pretty tight-lipped about this. What we can tell is that we think that the crime here is going to be falsifying business records. And this can be a misdemeanor in New York, but to make it a felony, which is up to four years in prison, prosecutors must show that Trump falsified these hush money payments, if we're talking about uh, Stormy Daniels, uh, to help conceal a second crime, which speculation seems to suggest that the second crime would be some kind of campaign finance violation, meaning that Trump was trying to hide from the voters and regulators that he was paying this hush money payments. And so uh, that's the crime here. And I think so much of the debate right now, Ricky, over the propriety Mm -hmm. of this or not, which is all speculation because we really don't know what this charge is going to be or series of charges and the strength of the evidence. It all seems to come down to whether that is actually a worthy crime to charge a former president. Yeah. And not to mention that the way that they would need to basically the it would be a misdemeanor if it was just falsifying business records on its own, which has a two year statute of limitations. So in order to raise this to the felony level, which stretches it out to five years, which by a technicality, because Trump was not in New York for the span of his presidency, that five year span kind of it goes on pause essentially based on New York law. So the statute of limitations would be drawn out. They've never made a combination before of using falsifying business records and then making like leaping to the second crime in the way that they would have to if this is the set of charges that um, that end up coming down for him. Um, so this is an untested theory att- potentially legally and could result in a judge throwing out the case entirely. Um, but there's also just a question about like what a campaign expense exactly is and how to define it. Um, Ravi, I know you said that you were a fan of this uh, column by Bradley Smith, who was the former FEC chair in the Washington Post. What what was his take on how we actually define campaign finances? Let me lay out first like what 
the case for this will be, because that'll help me then explain what, what Bradley Smith was saying, right? Because I, I do want to say, like, there is a strong case for this indictment. I, I just am not persuaded by it. I just want to lay it out. So here's the timeline here. And and I want to shout out Judd Legume from, I think, Popular Information is his uh, newsletter. So here's the timeline. October 25th, 2016, two weeks before Election Day, Stormy Daniels' attorney tells Michael Cohen that he was canceling the deal that they had worked out around basically keeping quiet about this alleged affair. Um, this is, you know, October 25th, 2016, so days before the election, right? So if this comes out, you can imagine this will play a role in a race that was decided by 70,000 votes. So Trump then goes through a series of moves. Most of these things seem beyond dispute at this point. Uh, to obscure his involvement in the payment. There's a non-disclosure agreement. He's referred to as a pseudonym. There's a separate side agreement that identifies him as Trump. Uh, Cohen pays this and uses fake invoices to the Trump organization. Trump himself signs the checks. Uh, and then they don't report this properly to the uh, election authorities, the Federal Election Committee. Most of that is beyond dispute. I think all of that is beyond dispute. I think the issue here that Bradley Smith has, who's the former FEC chair, and there are others uh, who've made similar arguments, is that it's really, really hard to show that Trump's intent here was to uh, influence the election instead of, say, uh, just guard his reputation. Right. Like, you know, you could imagine him making the same payment whether or not he ran for office. And this was there was a case with involving John Edwards, the former presidential candidate, where he had a whole separate campaign finance scandal. And there were charges brought against him that didn't stick related to something very similar. And they couldn't get him on that charge. It's really, really hard to show intent in these circumstances. Yeah. So I think that's I would I say mean, that is the, the strongest argument that Bradley Smith had. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say one of the potential defenses that he could make if he um, if he so chose would be to say, like, I wanted to protect Melania in a way because he had right. just uh, when this alleged affair occurred, just married her. So he could have he could come up with the story of I it wasn't about influencing the election. It was about not embarrassing my wife with this. I'm that's so mm -hmm. the Melania defense is a potential there. Um, yeah. Not sure if that's the most persuasive to everyone, but also like one of the things that I think backfired on Trump here is just the fact that like he got away with so much. I don't think people would have been that like, they're like, mm -hmm. you know, affairs happen with presidents. I don't know that this would have been the the nail in his coffin, even if it did come out uh, during the election. But yeah, here's, here's the issue here. And that's, this is what we're going to find out because the intent, if Bragg is bringing these charges and feels confident in them, he's going to have to eventually prove to a court. Now, the standard is different in a grand jury, but by and large, you're not going to bring a case that you don't think you're going to win at trial. New York's criminal procedure law provides that a defendant cannot be convicted solely on the testimony of an accomplice, which in this case would be Michael Cohen. So Michael Cohen's testimony alone, so if Michael Cohen is telling this grand jury and brag, hey, Trump told me this is because of the election, that's not enough. You need other evidence. Mm -hmm. So you need other, what they call corroborative evidence, corroborative evidence, which I, a word I apparently can't say. So uh, <laughs> who that person is, there have been tons of people testifying to this grand jury. So the question's going to come out, like Trump, who famously doesn't use email, 
Like, what other evidence is here that he intended to conspire to break federal election law or break any other laws? Like, maybe there's some kind of totally yeah. surprising thing happening here. But let's take a step back. We talked to Alvin Bragg in November 2021 about this. This is, like, pretty early in his administration. And the backdrop here is that Bragg took office and essentially said, you know what? I'm not sure there's a case here. And then he caught a ton of heat on social media. He had some people quit who were involved in the investigation, which we'll come back to. And then at the time that we sat down with him, he started to signal that he'd be revisiting this case. And in that context, I asked him why he didn't recuse himself. And the background mm -hmm. there is that he said some things in the election that I thought were prejudicial. He said, um, I've seen him up front, meaning Trump, and seen the law lawlessness that he could do. I believe we have to hold him accountable. Uh, and I've written about this elsewhere. Tish James went even further uh, and didn't recuse herself either. And so I was asking Bragg, hey, why don't you recuse yourself? And this is what he said. So, look, I, I think this may very well be the most consequential case in the history of local prosecution. Um, and, you know, having just, you know, gone through a campaign where I didn't say I would do that, I think that that would be an abdication. And, look, I can't rewrite history. Um, so, you know, when I was in the Attorney General's office, we sued Donald Trump's administration more than 100 times. And I stand by those cases. That was the context when I talked about lawlessness, yeah. um, because a lot of those cases were the administration simply not following, like, notice and comment like literally just changing the, you know, like the law and like not following any rules. Um, and so I, I do think, and we put in our litigation papers that that was lawless. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think substantively that's correct. Um, a little bit different from sort of him, the person. I mean, that was his yeah. administration. Um, I did also, you know, lead the Trump Foundation investigation, which was more about, you know, his conduct. Um, you know, but I don't think prior... You know, we've got lots of people who have you know, been investigated more than once by a prosecutor. Um, and I don't I don't think that um, a prior investigation um, is calls for, you know, recusal. So, Ricky, I think he may come to regret this move, uh, I think, in part because people are making this case about him a political actor who's made a lot of political statements. And he's saying he was commenting about prior investigations, but he said in the campaign, quote, we have to hold him accountable is a forward looking mm -hmm. statement. And the American Bar Association has pretty clear guidelines on this. So standard 3.1.10 relationship with the media, prosecutors should not make causes to be made or authorize or condone the making of a public statement that the prosecutor knows or reasonably should know will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing a criminal proceeding. And then it goes on to say the prosecutor should not offer commentary regarding the specific merits of an ongoing criminal prosecution or investigation, except in the rare case to address a manifest injustice. So in this case, it was an ongoing investigation. Mm -hmm. Bragg knew that when he was running for office. He knew that Vance was investigating this. He commented on it and says, we have to hold him accountable. And not only that, Ricky, the guy who was in charge of this investigation for Bragg, who quit over this disagreement with Bragg, wrote a book about it, basically saying how guilty Trump was. Who That guy is clearly in violation yeah. of the ABA guidelines. Yeah, I mean, I 
I think not only do I agree with that, I also agree with Reason Magazine's Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who's saying that this entire sort of spectacle that's going on right now could be a boon for Trump. And right now, I think the Republican Party is kind of moving towards gradually more of a DeSantis option. But if Trump can prop himself up as the the victim of a politicized investigation um, at, or claim that he was wrongfully indicted here, then his supporters might might kind of get vamped up again behind him. And I, I think that's a long-term negative, honestly, mm-hmm. for the Republican Party. And I'd, I'd rather this not be the thing that animates people to get out and protest and, and uh, kind of turn back the clocks to a time where Trump was a little more relevant and more Republicans' lives. Because I think for, by and large, the media hasn't really been talking about him as much on the right. And um, like mm-hmm. it, he kind of felt, felt like he was in the rearview mirror and now he's, he's back right in front of the car. Yeah. And what's interesting is the Georgia case, I find more like way stronger because it involves something. It's not a porn star at issue. It involves trying to steal an election. You have them on tape calling up the election officials, asking for a specific amount of votes. To me, that's where I'd rather have the debate. If we're going to have a debate Mm -hmm. about Trump breaking law, let's have it about that. I asked Bragg about this because I was worried, like, look, the, the big worry here is not whether Trump broke the law or not. I think it's very possible at the end of this, we're going to be like, Trump broke the law. The question is, is this a case that you would have brought against anybody, right? And this this is what I asked Bragg, uh, because it's prosecutorial discretion. Like, I think I've probably broken the law 50 times this week, just jaywalking across the street, right? I do it every single day. The question, and I know what Trump did is not jaywalking, but the question is, has there ever been a case like this ever brought? And it's, I can't find one. Um, But let's hear what Bragg had to say when I asked him about this. The one thing I would hope is that what comes out of this process is if there is an indictment, it's an indictment that anybody would have gotten and he doesn't get because he's Donald Trump. I think the standard you started with, which is would you do it with anyone else, is the standard. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and and on the Trump Foundation matter, that was the question we we literally sat around a table and we said, okay, let's. You know, there's, there's going to be nothing 100% analogous. You know, you're not going to have to say like, oh, let's look at what we do with the other former presidents, right? right like that. Right. But like the, the 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 underlying facts, we said, you know, I was overseeing that. So look, you know, bring me, you know, it's like if you, you bring me the comps, yeah. bring me the comparables, and and then let's you know um, look at them and then ask the question, um, if this were someone else, would we be doing this case? And the answer in the Trump Foundation was yes. What we're talking about here actually did kind of happen when we're talking about the Hillary Clinton analogy. So the Federal Elections Commission fined Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and the DNC for not properly disclosing money they used to fund opposition research, the Steele dossier. So basically, the same mechanism that we're talking about here. So the mechanism that Trump is being accused of is using his lawyer. This is honestly a very common trick that people use for opposition research is to say, I'm going to hide this as a legal expense. So if I'm like running against Joe Garvey for like president and I want to fund like a bunch of creepy opposition researchers to dig up dirt about him and I don't want that to show up in our our FEC report, I'm going to have my law firm commission it and it's just going to show up as, you know, you know, white and case law firm as on the invoice, not the eventual person who's doing the opposition research. And that's what Hillary Clinton got fined for. Now, that's kind of similar to what Trump did in the sense that he used Michael Cohen, invoiced Michael Cohen, who then paid off Stormy Daniels. Now, the end thing is different. Like, it's paying off a porn star 
versus mm-hmm. doing opposition research. But the 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 motive is the same, which is to shield voters from information that they otherwise would be entitled to. Well, I think um, with all these questions abounding here about what actually constitutes campaign finance and whether there is a stretch being made, whether or not, like regardless of the outcome here, it's it's playing straight into Trump's hand and it's it's enraging conservatives certainly across the aisle. One of the consistent criticisms that we're hearing is that Bragg is not looking at other crime in New York and he's spending his time looking at a uh, uh, Trump indictment here, but let's hear from former Vice President Pence, who had some thoughts on this. I'm taken aback at the idea of indicting a former president of the United States um, at, a, at a time when there's a crime wave in New York City. That the fact that the Manhattan DA thinks uh, that uh, indicting President Trump is his top priority, I think, is just tells you everything you need to know about the radical left in this country. <laughs> It's funny. I, uh, I definitely, that's not the line of argument that I would pick. Um, I recently had a interaction with his office about, um, I witnessed this like really unfortunate fight outside of my building and they, to their credit, they were, they consistently followed up and they, and they brought charges and I almost had to go down and testify. So as much as I might not be a brag fan, I, in my very small sample size, they did actually go after the crime that I witnessed. So I do, yeah. That that is one area where I want to correct the record because we've been hard on Bragg. We talked about the deli owner who, or the deli clerk, and yeah. how Bragg screwed that whole thing up, and et cetera. You can both be a citizen of New York and be like, we could do better, and then I also see this sensationalized coverage and be like, we're catastrophizing something that is not a catastrophe. I agree that it's pointing to something completely unrelated to this case. I, it's a, it's a whataboutism sort of pivot. I, I had the personal experience of Bragg. Bragg's office following through with a crime that I witnessed. So I'm not concerned about his overall bandwidth as much as the specifics of this indictment. So I agree that that's not the type of criticism that's actually valid here. What's valid, I believe, is the internal context of this this set of charges and the potential indictment. So that was Mike Pence. We're definitely not going to go down this other rabbit hole, which is what DeSantis said. He's catching some heat from the right uh, around what people view as him kind of throwing Trump out of the bus. It was definitely a little subtle. Uh, it was definitely more subtle than what Trump said. What is interesting, though, is uh, economist YouGov did a poll March 2016, and um, they basically are comparing how people feel now uh, than how they felt back when the Stormy Daniel stuff originally became public. And that was 2018. And so since 2018, the share of Americans who say it is a crime to have a candidate pay someone to remain silent about an issue that may affect the outcome of an election. So they didn't mention Trump. It says, is it a crime mm-hmm. for a candidate to pay someone to remain silent about an issue that may affect the outcome of the election? Um, the people who say it is a crime has risen 16% to 72%. And nearly all of the shift- 16 percentage is, points. 16 percentage point increase. Nearly all of the shift is concentrated among Republicans. Uh, mm-hmm. I find that interesting. I don't I can't really explain that data other than maybe they're thinking about Hunter Biden or something. Yeah, I think it's it's always relative to whoever is forefront in people's minds. Um it also could be a consequence of the fact that more conservatives who were previously pro-Trump have distanced themselves as well. Yeah. But I think when if you were to unprompted just ask someone that question right now, who's a conservative, they're probably thinking about the most recent election cycle and they're probably thinking about something to do with Biden is my yeah. my guess. But by and large, like I, the right is 
distancing itself or at least parts of the right are distancing themselves from from Trump and the MAGA world. And a lot of a lot of us on the right are like wanting to see that in the rearview mirror more than it is right now. But alas, mm-hmm. he's back and calling for people to protest. So great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that was, uh, you know, that's where we are today. You know, Tuesday morning, any minute now, this news could change and we'll come back to it. And I think the key here is there's a question of, was there a crime? Is this a crime that would have been charged under any other circumstances? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for some of these other investigations and our politics writ large? This will be a developing story and certainly one that we'll be covering more. Uh, But let's talk about... One one last thing on this note, I just have to say, I've this is a story that you covered. I think this Alvin Bragg interview was before I even came to the lost debate. And I remember watching it back and really respecting that, even though I think you're less friendly towards Trump than I am or to his cohort of people, (laughs) that this is an issue that you've consistently... Uh, treated with, with a an objectivity that I that I admire, and so I think you know, I don't I don't think the left will cancel you for that, but oh, I, maybe I'm tonight. giving them too much credit. Wait but, till no, tonight but to when your, I get but on to Midas. your credit, I think I I admire the ability to zoom out and not get animated by by personal feelings about Trump. And that interview with Bragg was um, honest and solid. So yeah. I mean, the biggest downside to it all is I was banking on my one crime. I could commit and get away with it in Manhattan. And now I don't have that card with Bragg anymore because I'm sure he's probably upset at me right now. So last week I sat down with Brad Hargreaves, who's the founder and chairman of Common, to talk about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and its potential impact on the global banking industry. In the days since that conversation, there have been a lot of developments show Give us an overview of what has happened since that conversation. Yeah, so just a quick recap for our listeners. On Friday, March 10th, federal regulators stepped in and took control of Silicon Valley Bank. That followed a bank run where depositors tried to withdraw a whopping $42 billion from the bank just one day prior, resulting in the second largest bank failure in American history. A few days later, on March 12th, the FDIC shut down Ailing Signature Bank to prevent the spread of banking contagion marking the third largest bank failure in American history. But trouble obviously did not stop there. Last Thursday, Secretary Yellen worked out a deal with the nation's biggest banks to provide a $30 billion infusion to regional lender First Republic Bank, which saw its stock plunge during the entire turmoil. Uh, Then on Sunday, in a bid to quell market panic, UBS, which is Switzerland's largest bank, agreed to purchase its main competitor, Credit Suisse, in an emergency rescue deal for $3.2 billion. Robbie, do you see any indication that we are out of the woods just yet? I mean, you know, who the hell knows, but I think, you know, Credit Suisse or Swiss, I don't know how we talk about this. If it's Swiss, it should just be S-W-I-S-S. Because we're we're Americans and we speak English, right? I think this is a big deal. It's not being covered as much here because it's a European bank. But I think this is a classic Whoa, case. Europe, European? Here, yeah, well, I say it weird. <laughs> I don't know why I add an H, but maybe it's the time I spent in the South. Like, why? Like, why? Why do it's I add an H to everything? But okay, so this one's interesting to me because we don't need to get into all the details, but essentially it was just a couple of like mild signals in the market, like the Saudis, for instance, saying that they weren't going to invest more in this bank to prop it up, kind of led people into a panic. And essentially UBS, who didn't want to buy this, 
was kind of forced into a purchase at a fire sale price and given access to an insane line of credit from the Swiss government. Mm -hmm. Not only that, there's this whole like, and we're not a finance podcast, but we'll link in the notes to this economist article that does a really good job of explaining this seemingly arcane issue to me that when you ask me like, is this going to like lead to some kind of contagion? I actually think the credit Swiss part of this is the most interesting because they wrote mm -hmm. down $17 billion in these tier one bonds. They call them AT1 bonds. And uh, you can read about it. I don't need to go into the details here other than to say that there are a ton of investors who invest in these bonds. These bonds are really important to the solvency of a lot of banks. Uh, and <clears throat> what happened is when people buy these bonds, they're basically sold these bonds, assuming that they have priority over equity, meaning like stockholders, et cetera. Uh, now, you may be like, why does this matter? Well, the Swiss government and UBS stepped in and basically reversed the order, putting the equity and stockholders ahead of the bondholders, the AT1 bondholders, wiping out a lot of these bonds. That, to me, is systemic risk. Because then you have a bunch of people holding bonds like that in other banks who are now panicking. The value of those bonds, at least the last time I checked, I haven't checked this morning, the value of those bonds... Uh, across other banks are starting to go down. That could affect the solvency of other banks. That's that's yeah. an underreported issue. The Economist is the only publication I've seen do this any justice, and that to me, you know, not a, not a story that's being covered here in America much. That's that's something we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, and on the issue of contagion, I think this is an interesting developing story because this is like the first major bank run of its type in like the the true social media era and mm -hmm. the way that panic can be viral and spread in, a, in to a degree that it couldn't in history is um really concerning to me i mean i i i, I think mark kelly was the the politician who was advocating for like cracking down on social media discussion about this, which I don't think is the solution. But I think that the potential of a bank run or the potential of multiple is um, kind of unprecedented in the way that people freak out or the way that that news uh, spreads today. So I'm yeah. concerned from that vantage point. Yeah. And I think like the move that regulators like there's a lot of regulation being proposed here. But I think the biggest thing that seems to have some bipartisan consensus is the FDIC stepped in Silicon Valley Bank and essentially insured deposits above 250. I think what Congress, Elizabeth Warren, yeah. um, among others, and there seems to be some bipartisan support for this, are saying, well, let's just make this permanent and just insure deposits above 250 writ large and just make that the rule. That could be one of the biggest changes coming out of this. Uh, there also to was clarify, is she saying to put a higher number in place or to have no number in place? I'm not sure, Joe. Do you know the answer to that? I just heard them saying lifted yeah, above She said uh, bumping it would be, quote, a good move. Yeah. I actually I agree with that, to be honest, because, if, I mean, we may as well just have a, an actual promise that we we live we live towards because I don't really know what precedent this um this sets if there's a, a now there's a theory that you know the 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 Fed will just sweep in and help and you can be more risky with your investments potentially yep. as a bank. I don't I don't know if that sends a good message. I think if we have a certain number that you that we promise that should be the number that we follow through with. But then again, I mean, I am obviously very um, sympathetic to people who lost their money in a, a way that would be 
just hard to even comprehend. But, you know, I don't know what this precedent really does long term. Yeah. And I think there are other parts of this regulation debate. So Dodd-Frank was passed in 2008. Part of that regulation had capital and liquidity requirements, i.e. like how much money you have to keep in the bank as a as a bank and how much you can lend out or invest. They also had stress tests, essentially saying, all right, banks have to demonstrate that under certain you know extreme market conditions that they'll remain healthy. But in 2018, yeah. Republicans in Congress with some Democrats exempted small and medium-sized banks from some of those requirements, including a threshold for stress tests that used to be $50 billion and then went up to 250 mm-hmm. under the revision of that law. Why is that significant? Because Silicon Valley Bank was about $200 billion in assets, so they did not have to conduct those stress tests. One of those stress tests would have been a scenario involving higher interest rates. So that's an area where you're going to yeah. see a lot of debate around regulation and whether they want to bring back some of those regulations. It's interesting to see if consumers will, in a way, correct here. Because like Bank of America, for example, according to one insider in just a week, got $15 billion worth of Mm. new deposits. So are people going to start moving towards these bigger banking institutions? Are we going to see this different kind of consolidation? And another thing that was interesting to me here, when I first heard about this, because Silicon Valley Bank did, like was popular in the crypto sphere um, in terms of a banking place to go. I at first was like, oh my gosh, my crypto is going to go down even more. But then mm. the it was I the opposite effect that. because people... You. I, I mean, what am, what am I going to do? Sell it at this loss? Like, what's the point? Um, yeah. It's a small amount, but you know, I was just... It's, it's interesting to see that it did go up um, mm-hmm. as a result because people are just not confident in our banking system. And I, I saw you tweeting about um, issues with the Fed. So I have some homework for you. I'm curious to see what you would think of Ron Paul's book, End the Fed. I'll read it. Ricky, yeah. there, was a, there was a report last week from Bloomberg uh, that said that Bank of America attracted $15 billion in new deposits. Uh, and that was after they had pledged, or during the time they had pledged $5 billion to First Republic. So it seems like they're doing pretty well. Well, that's the other thing about First Republic, right? Uh, and we're not going to go through all of these these rescues and all the ins and outs, but uh, on Thursday, March 16th, they received $30 billion in deposits from nearly a dozen banks, including some of the biggest, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, et cetera. So the big banks are stepping in to prop up the small and medium-sized banks here that might be mm-hmm. in trouble. That's notable. That's essentially what the FDIC is anyway, because so much of what the FDIC does is through fees that they get from banks, which is part of this debate, Ricky, because I think what you're seeing here is some simple debates here. Uh, You know, the Fed debate is an interesting one. I think we should have a whole segment on that. Uh, There's a really fascinating debate going on around Balaji Srinivasan, who's been talking about, you know, People, he's basically trying to spur a bank run for people pulling out and putting money into crypto, which is a huge debate going on, which I definitely don't want us to go down that rabbit hole. But there's a couple of things here that I see out there that are just so simplified. One is I'm seeing these tweet threads about who's yeah. to blame. And usually the answer is one person, right? I think there's a lot of blame to go around here. Yeah. Silicon Valley Bank itself managed risk poorly. Some of these other banks did as well. It's very obvious they didn't hedge their risks. There's a whole set of problems there. Um, people who sowed panic and participated in the panic, some of them knew better. Uh, that's the most controversial point. The Fed, uh, for its herky-jerky interest mm-hmm. rate policy, certainly has some of the blame here. Lawmakers, also in my opinion, potentially to blame because they uh, have stepped in 
uh, and rolled back some of this regulation, as we talked about. So it seems like there's a lot of blame to go around here. Now, you don't have to agree with all of those points about who's yeah. to blame, but I think like trying to isolate one person is silly here. No, I completely agree. And I, I mean... I think there are so many factors at play, including like you could go to the root of the question of like, should the Fed even be hiking interest rates in the first place? And But at yeah. the same time, you can go to the very obvious conclusion that Silicon Valley Bank should have known that that was in the imminent future with uh, the inflation rates and just the way that our, our fiscal policy works today. So I think there's, I think there are a lot of simplified narratives that I'm hearing over and over and over again. Um, in this specific issue. But one question that I have for you, Ravi, is about bailouts themselves because people are throwing around the term bailout here, but Mm -hmm. there's a counter argument to be made that this was not exactly a bailout per se. So where do you come down on that? Yeah, this is another area that I think is too simplified because there's not like a technical definition of a bailout. So I think like the better question is, was this a good use of either taxpayer money or bank fees, mm-hmm. which is just another way of saying taxpayer money because they're paying taxes too. So it's like, um, like, yeah. was this a good use of the government? I think is a good question. And then I'll try to answer it in the, the context of bailouts. So the people who say this is not a bailout will say, look, depositors were rescued, but not stockholders and management. This is what Biden said when he made his point. And that, this is true. This is a marked departure from the 2008 financial crisis yeah. when we basically rescued everybody. And the, the taxpayers yeah. did, in fact, bail out the management, the equity holders, et cetera. Now, the, so people are, are technically right about that. Uh, now, they'll also say that the FDIC stepping in, this is from fees from the banks, not taxpayers, quote unquote. Now, what they mean is like average people, right? And they're right about that. It's not coming from, you know, mom and pop, plumber, accountant, podcaster like us. Uh, it's coming from the banks themselves. Now, the, the the problem I have with this argument is that is all true. And they people do deserve credit for learning from the 2008 financial crisis and not doing it the exact same way. There are elements of this that's a bailout, though. One is the bank term lending program where they're lending out billions of dollars to these banks. And I talked about this with Brad Hargreaves. He didn't really have a good answer to it. The um, the uh, program is offering up, allowing banks to offer up collateral to receive these huge loans. And uh, they are pricing the bonds that these banks are holding at what they call at par, which means the value at which they originally issued, not the market value. Why is this important? Well, because the market value has dropped for these bonds. And so essentially what the Fed is doing Mm -hmm. is saying, we're going to just treat your collateral as more than it really is to lend you money. Now, you and I don't Mm -hmm. get that you know, benefit. It's not like, hey, like my stock portfolio goes down and I want to buy a house. It's not like the bank is going to, the Fed or any other bank is going to be like, you know what? I'm going to price that at what it was two years ago when the stock market was up way more. So we are making a special exception for these banks. And I think people should be more upfront about that, whether you want to call it a bailout or not, like less important to me than just to say like they, they are getting treatment that you and I wouldn't get. What sort of regulatory measures would you advocate for in response to seeing how this has played out, if any? Yeah, I, I'm honestly like at the beginning of that journey. And I'm starting with a couple premises. One is, it seems like what is too big to fail, to use the term that we used to throw around in 2008, is bit, is smaller than we ever thought before. I think Silicon Valley mm-hmm. Bank was like the 16th largest bank. So if, yeah. if that bank 
going down leads to contagion among other banks, then that fundamentally changes my perception of like what the government's role is to prop up those banks. And then in return, I tend to think, all right, if the government is going to step in and secure your future as a bank, then they should be asking for certain things in return, like certain liquidity requirements, like the stress mm-hmm. tests. I'm definitely open to those. Now, I'm not totally sure. I need to like hear a really good explanation of how these stress tests work in practice and whether they would have, in fact, uh, stopped this. Because if it's just like a box checking exercise, uh, that's one thing. If it really does prompt these banks to do things that they clearly aren't doing around risk, like they're, it's frustrating. You're a libertarian. It's frustrating to look at private actors who are just so bad at managing risk, like, and yeah. then wanting the government to step in when they don't manage that risk really well. So I'm, I would say I'm at the beginning yeah. of the journey here. I do like the FDIC increasing the ceiling on that. Obviously, there's got to be a trade off there that's communicated. Like, where's the money coming from, et cetera? That seems smart. Yeah. Uh, because like in the end, what you're going to do is just move your money around to a bunch of different banks. Like what's the pol- public policy rationale for that? Like you might as well just yeah. insure deposits if we're going to insure deposits. No, I agree. But, and I'll, but to that point that you just made about um, like who's too big to fail and, and who should be um, able to make these or these private actors making the, taking these huge risks, the question then that I struggle with and I don't have the answer to is that stepping in when they do make these risks and the government intervention here potentially is just incentivizing more of that behavior because the the risk is high but the potential payoff could be really high if you're if you're able to be a little more gutsy yes. than you normally would if you didn't think that the government was there to fall back on. So it is something that 100%. like I have my libertarian ideals in one part of my brain and then I'm like seeing how this whole mess works in practice. And so it's just very hard to like, I do have my utopian world, but then there's also this um, very bureaucratic framework that we work in, in this country and then we inherited. And so I don't really know always how to uh, weigh those two. And this is an issue where I definitely feel like I'm in that middle ground of not really knowing what to think, except for maybe just pull out my old Ron Paul book and and yeah. get based again. <laughs> there are competing claims being made here, right? The Elizabeth Warrens of the world make a point where I nod my head when I hear it, where they're like, hey, like these banks are, are they shouldn't be taking risks with people's money the way they do. They should just be more stable, yada, yada, yada. But then I'm like, well, banks play a really important function in society. They lend money out to businesses that need to get started. Mm-hmm. They lend money out for mortgages, et cetera. Now, what she would say is, I'm cool with those simple tasks. It's when they start doing very complex things with money that we get concerned. But I'm not convinced that Silicon Valley Bank was doing anything too complicated. They were buying bonds. These weren't credit default swaps, right? And there's a mm-hmm. paper out there um, from a bunch of different economists, Amit Seru, uh, Gregor Matvos, you know, a bunch of different professors out there. We'll link it in the show notes that showed that um, 10% of banks had larger unrecognized losses than SVB. And uh, something like 10% also had uh, were worse capitalized. So meaning SVB wasn't even like, you know, they weren't the worst offender here. There were a lot of banks here doing similar things uh, and were in worse shape than yeah. them. And so this seems to be like fairly widespread. Uh, but, but then on the flip side, and maybe this is a good place to end, you and I don't get the same risk uh, calculus that they get. So if you and I play around in the market mm-hmm. or you're, you you invest more in crypto, you're responsible for those losses. Nobody's going to step in and say, all right, yeah. Ricky is insolvent. And so we're going to step in and guarantee 
Ricky's books or Ricky bet on something that went down significantly, but we're going to still allow her to use the par value of her investment to, to, to receive a loan, right? None of us get that, Mm -hmm. that, um, privilege. And so this is where the government needs to step in and be able to explain in plain language to people what it is they're doing and why it's fair. So Arkansas, we just spoke about them quite recently. And uh, my friend, the governor over there, who was very nice in my interview, um, she she's really come out swinging from day one with huge policy first, uh, like tons of executive orders. And one of the things that is getting a lot of attention right now is this Youth Hiring Act, which has been effective um, since earlier this month, which effectively changes the law which as it stood required 14 and 15 year olds who wanted to work to have to go to the state to get a permit with their parents' permission. Um, And so the parents and the state and the kid needed to all sign off um, if they wanted to be 14 or 15 and and work a job. Um, And that will remove this whole permit situation. So you can participate in in the workforce on your own, at your own volition, or at your family's volition, if you're in that age group now. And critics have certainly come for her for this one. Yeah, one of the things that critics are pointing to is this uh, announcement that an investigation by the Department of Labor, which found that since 2018, there has been a 69% increase in children being employed illegally by companies. In the last fiscal year, the department found 835 companies that investigated had employed more than 3,800 children in violation of labor laws. When I look at all this together, it's just like it is a coherent set or framework that she has here of just putting more choice in people's hands on those two fronts. And so, I mean, if if she is animated by the desire to give people choice over their educational path, she's similarly animated by a desire to give parents and families and teens a choice over their employment path. And I think it also... And in terms of the LEARNS Act, there was the provision of giving this pre-professional track to kids who are still in school. So I think, you know, encouraging kids, if they're going to go down that route to get some work experience when they're younger teens before they go down that pre-professional, like late high school Mm -hmm. program, actually is a solid thing. It all makes sense to me together, taken as a whole. I mean, I don't agree with all the legislation that she has cranked out recently, but certainly these pieces feel um, very cohesive. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I mean, I, 14 and 15 is not younger. I, I would disagree with it going any younger than 14, I think, for sure. But we're already in a context where these kids can work. They just have to jump through a hoop. And potentially, if you're an employer and you know that this kid who wants to have a summer job with you or something is he's only 14 or 15. And so he's going to have to go through this permit process. And maybe you just want to wait and hire someone else instead. Mm-hmm. Like that, that does feel like a prohibitive potential thing that is standing between kids and, and jobs that that they would otherwise have. I also take exception to pointing to these instances of illegal child labor and saying that that's what's happening here. It's, I mean, I think it's completely different if an employer is willing to circumvent all all the laws in their locality and they have to be paying these people off the books. I mean, these kids were in some like meatpacking a place and cleaning a uh, mm-hmm. hundred of them like that's that's a really concerning reality but, and I think when you make child labor illegal then you get the most 
disturbing versions of it, which this seems to have been, versus here, it's saying, do it all out in the open in in polite society. You're not paying them off the books. And, and mm-hmm. here's a way that it's legal. So I don't think I would point to the illegal versions and say that yeah. that's what's going to start happening in Arkansas because they're still going to be subject to oversight. I, yeah, and I, I'm with you. Like my first jobs where I worked at a sign shop in Staten Island that was like manual labor. And then I worked for my uncle's construction company. Mm-hmm. And then I delivered pizza. Those were all three relatively dangerous jobs. And I got hurt on the job a couple times, including slicing off a little piece Delivering of my finger. Pizza's Delivering pizza is a dangerous pizza. Sto- job. Yeah, I mean, you're speeding around Staten Island delivering, you know, and you get into accidents and whatnot. The oh. construction one, I guess, is more dangerous okay. than the other ones. That one I legitimately yeah, got hurt. Yeah, I would say so. I think it's a um, Staten Island thing. Minnesota's bill would permit 16 to 17-year-olds to work in construction jobs. You know, it was around mm-hmm. the age that I did construction jobs. I don't have a problem with any of that. I think most people wouldn't have a problem with that. It's up to the parents in many cases. Although, in the case of Arkansas, I think the permit is an added step that that allows for the parent to consent and from what I understand, they've removed that step. Uh, but I'm not sure why parental consent is so important. Like, what's what's the concern that rogue 14 year olds are going to go get a summer job without their parents' permission? I don't know, but it could be the job itself. Do I think this is the biggest thing in the world? No, I I do think though that the 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 lack of a truancy expectation, right? Like, so if there aren't, like in my neighborhood growing up, there were truancy officers who made sure that you were in school. Now they were slow Mm -hmm. and weren't always the most effective. But by and large, people could get in a lot of trouble back in the day if you were working and you were a school-aged person and you were working school-aged hours at Mm -hmm. an employer. Uh, That's big no-no. Even if you're working off the books in a set down, all three of those jobs I just mentioned were off the books. So technically illegal child labor. They were fine. But the... But... But... The thing that worries me now is that that norm being pierced where like a kid working at noon at a McDonald's is no longer viewed as some kind of, um, you know, major sin and something that McDonald's should be accountable for. I start to worry about that norm changing. Yeah, I I don't disagree. But I do think that we need to move back towards a place where young people getting jobs earlier. I don't know if it's 14 or 15 or 16. I mean, I the day after my 16th birthday was my first day of work in Massachusetts, because that was the that was a lot. And my mom said, as soon as you can, it was folding shirts at Jack Wells, a British uh, fashion company. And you know, doing my retail, um, folding t shirts and nice little stacks. I was actually really bad at it. And I got a lot of help from my coworkers for that. But, you know, I think that our culture has moved away from that. And like back in the 70s, the participation rate of 16 to 19 year olds um, in the labor was around 60%. Now it's hovering around 35%. It's actually a little higher than it was pre-pandemic. But we also have the issue of like COVID uh, retirements and stuff and, and the job market. And a lot of the jobs that younger people typically took have a lot of vacancies right now. And so I think that moving towards not just fixing the job market by having more young people involved, but also just building that that character and that work experience younger is generally yeah. a positive thing that we should be shifting towards. And so I think if this was just an unnecessary barrier between um, kids and, and a, a job that is respectful of their other requirements as a kid that goes to school, which I don't think this absolves them of the fact that they need to be attending school, then, you know, I, I view this as generally a positive and I don't really see why parental p- permission is the most important thing here. Because if anything, I would say there's like the biggest concern that I have is parents 
like mistreating their kids by forcing them to work too young. And it's less mm-hmm. the other way around of kids saying like, I'm, I don't really want to like, you know, maybe their parents don't have the time to go and go through the permit process with them and, yeah. and apply and everything. And like that could be prohibitive and they might want to just save some money or get some experience or they, they want to try out a job before they enroll in one of these pre-professional programs for the end yeah. of their high school career. Like I, I think that the concern about parents is really secondary here. And I, this is not a law that I'm upset about at all. Yeah. Something you said though, it continues to be my concern though. I think it's the parent forcing the kid to work and getting ESA dollars for the kid not going to school, that kind of world. Yeah, and I had a, yeah I had a, no, I do see that. Yeah, and on the, this week's Citizen Steward episode, which will be up today, I have somebody from uh, a Coke-backed uh, uh, education group that is very pro-ESA, where we kind of talk a little bit about yeah. some of those downsides to it. So we have a big debate on yeah. that episode about it, if people are listening. The other issue I have here, Ricky, is this Iowa bill, uh, there seems to be a provision in committee which who knows like wh- whether this will make it through or not, and I hope it doesn't, that states, quote, a business that accepts a secondary student in a work-based learning program shall not be subject to civil liability for any claim for bodily injury to the student or sickness or death by accident of the student arising from the student's driving to or from the business or worksite to participate in a work-based learning program or from the business's negligent act or omission during the student's participation. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. We want younger people yeah. to work. Forget the driving to and from, right? One could argue that that's not there, yeah. but the particip- like negligent act or omission during the student's participation, why are we carving that out? Yeah. I don't have any argument for yeah. that. That carve that's out makes the, no sense to me. to me. If anything, I think that these younger kids who are working earlier should be afforded the most protection. If, if sure. the trade-off here is allowing them to work younger, they should be also... Um, you know, that's the best case for government oversight of jobs is when it involves vulnerable minors, 100%. Got it. Well, I think that's all I got uh, on this front. It just harkens back to the days. Shout out to Michael Halloran over at Sinorama for giving me my first job for $3 an hour back in Staten Island. Um, I'm not sure I actually warranted the $3 an hour. I remember once I, I broke a sign that was worth like thousands of bucks and he made me work the whole summer on $3 an hour to pay him back for the sign. Off the books? Off the books. Nice. Just like you pay me. Yeah, just like I pay you. Don't come after me, authorities. <laughs> Alvin Bragg now. Now he heard me. Now he's he's going to come after me for, for child labor. Everybody who's listening, get out there. Rate, review, subscribe. Give us that five-star rating. Uh, it's really important to us because we don't take advertising. We don't charge you any money. The one thing we ask is that you spread the word and say good things about us out there on the internets. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll see you Thursday. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. <laughs>